hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Girl Grant, and I'm joined today by Martin Curtis, who is an old age psychiatrist in Warwick and who holds a master's degree in mental health law. And today we're going to be discussing his new paper in BJ Psych Advances, which is called The Court of Protection, Expert, Witness and Professional Reports. Martin, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. So your paper discusses a case in the Court of Protection and some of the ramifications of the legal judgment handed down. Um, so maybe you could just start by giving us a really brief summary of the case. So I have a, an interest in, in mental health law and looking for cases that are quite unique, such that I can try and, as best I can, almost like translate or make aware the, um, the judgment to a clinician. So that's what I always try and do. And I've, I've had a series of papers like this. So I try and bridge the gap between pure legalese and clinical stuff. So I'm always looking for unique papers. And this one's unique because the judge in the case gave quite explicit advice and guidance for clinicians who were preparing expert reports. And so that was the, I always look for a unique selling point of a paper and that was what it was for me. And it had a guidance around clinicians preparing reports for the court of protection. So that was the, the key thing. The, the case itself was about a, a, an older person uh, in a care home who had a variety of capacity-based decisions to be made, which is not unusual in the court of protection. So the case in itself wasn't remarkable, but there was issues around uh, the expert witness and how they presented their evidence in writing to the court, which eventually wasn't satisfactory. So they had to redo the case with a, a bring in a second mm. expert witness. So that, that was the key thing for the case. So, um, so basically, yeah, as you say, this case was a 68-year-old woman, right, who was in a care home. And basically, uh, correct me if I've misunderstood this, the local authority had wanted to determine that she lacked capacity so that they yeah. could continue to make decisions about her placement. Yeah, there was a variety of things. So when, so when court protection uh, cases go to court, it's usual to have a, ver a variety of capacity-based decisions to be assessed. And in this case, I'm just quickly looking at the case here. So there was... In, in this case, there was issues around whether she could litigate in court, her place of mm -hmm. residence, uh, care and support, contact with other people, could she develop the relationship with a, a, another resident, uh, management management for property and affairs, uh, engagement in sexual relations, and, and whether she could consent to marriage. So all of those individual decisions would have been individually looked at to see mm -hmm. and assessed whether she had capacity to consent to, to, to those specific decisions. And I think it was I think it was born out of um, a variety of issues, and I suspect it was it was possibly the relationship she developed with the other the other gentleman that might mm -hmm. have been the sort of the final trigger. I mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe something that would be useful for um, a, a general psychiatrist is obviously almost every psychiatrist will be aware of the court of protection, but many people might not be clear as to exactly how a case ends up in the court of protection. Um, so. What, what is it that specifically has brought this case to the attention of a judge? Uh, is it just that the person spent a lot of time in the care home or, or, or is it that there's been some dispute or what's caused this to come to a court? I think it was the, the so the applicant, you're right, is the local authority. And I, I guess there was just a, a variety of issues that they felt that they couldn't um, decide locally, just that there was probably some some disagreement possibly around um, the capacity for these individual things. And so... Um, I think that's what um, prompted them to, to to bring it to court. So they would have made the application 
to the Court of Protection to make these decisions. And so what makes this case interesting from our perspective is that once the case was in court, all sides together decided to ask an expert witness who is, is referred to in your paper as Dr. X, who's a consultant forensic psychiatrist. So they asked this expert witness to prepare a report. Uh, and that is really what interests us, um, if I'm not mistaken. That, well, that was the key. So, so it's you, in these court of protection cases, it's, it's usual to, to instruct uh, an expert that's agreed by, so the parties can be obviously the, the applicant in this local authority and, and then the other people involved. So, and, and the, the general way they approach it is, is to ask one independent expert witness with specialism in this area to become involved it's it's unusual so i think i've alluded to in the or i've mentioned in the, in the paper that, that it's unlikely to get a second expert witness although they did in this type in this case because they felt the evidence produced by the expert witness in this case which caused quote disquiet amongst everybody including the expert witness to be fair um meant that, that the judge felt that they couldn't make decisions on, on the evidence produced in this case. And so that's why a second expert witness was um, requested. Okay. And then um, what really, uh, uh, I suppose, has, has got you to write this paper is that the expert witness, Dr. X, produced um, a written report. And basically, the, to cut a long story short, the judge wasn't convinced by the written report for various reasons. Well, the, the, well there was various written reports throughout um, uh, the process. I think he wrote four in in in, in total. Um, but the key thing is that the court instructs the expert witness with a variety of specific questions. And um, I think in this case, he, he reviewed the the person three or four times. And the the disquiet came from the fact that there was a sort of a lack of um, explanation. He changed his view, uh, he changed his view latterly, but there was no obvious explanation or, or, or reasoning behind that. It, it reached ahead in that prior to the, the actual court case, the, the parties uh, and, and all those involved hadn't really had time to ask for more reports. And so it came out through verbal evidence that, that there was some essentially mismatch or, or, or lack of explanation of his views really and how it tied in specifically to the principles of the principles and the sections of the Mental Capacity Act. So I think that was the, the thing in the end, that he didn't quite answer the specific questions to the satisfaction of the court and the, the parties involved. And also his view change, which is absolutely fine. Obviously, things you can change your view, but but it was felt that that, that was there wasn't a satisfactory uh, reasoning or, or explanation of of that change they, they accept that, that opinions can change but uh, and and the, the key thing is and i think the um the legal team for the person the people involved sort of said well we don't think that one of the first principles of the mental capacity act i.e everybody is presumed to have capacity until proven otherwise they felt that in this case that the, the presumption of capacity hadn't been disproved or they used the word rebutted so that was one of the key things was that they felt the evidence produced wasn't satisfactory enough to rebut this presumption of capacity in the patient for for these various decisions. Mm. So yeah, so you've got this box in the paper, box two, uh, which basically goes over the problems that the uh, judge had with the expert evidence, which, as you yeah. say, is, is essentially that it was not decision specific enough and that basically Dr. X wasn't really explaining exactly 
what he'd said to um, the person and what they'd said back and how that led to his views. Is that a fair summary of, of the problem with the evidence? Yeah, 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 yeah. They sort of used the word broad brush. I mean, this, the expert evidence, I don't think the judge um, in the case was overly critical in the sense that the expert witness was um, was very experienced, etc. Uh, and it was probably just a culmination of contextual issues in the case, I guess. But the, yeah, and then there was, there was an issue that that they they tackled about whether the person involved sort of how, how well they did or didn't engage in any interviews. And that's uh, there's a comment about how the, the expert felt he'd hit a brick wall in his attempts to have um, a final interview with, with her. Um, and and the, the judge actually makes helpful in, in his advice and guidance. He, he sort of says that's fine. People can hit these brick walls, but it, but you sort of need to show what you did to try and overcome that. It may be insurmountable, but there are other ways around. Possibly for some people, in, in using various methods or, or different alternate, different communication strategies, or seeing somebody at a different time or whatever. So I think he, the judge actually. Again, I think the expert witness probably did hit a brick wall, as it was called, but but the judge wanted just a bit more uh, information about that. How about how the expert witness tried to overcome it, I think? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point, because this, this actually will probably be a situation that many psychiatrists have been in when attempting to assess somebody's capacity, is that you feel that simply you can't engage the person well enough to actually make a, a decision. You know, you can't necessarily get Get them to give you uh, answers to questions that, that you want um and, and that is an interesting point and and so in this case what's happened and this is in box three of your paper is basically that the judge has actually released some guidance as to what their views are about what you should do and this is specific to the court of protection but what you should do when preparing a report so maybe we just talk about those briefly so there's lots of interesting points being made here but the basic summary, as far as I've understood it, is that, number one, you have to make sure that what you say is lined up with the Mental Capacity Act. Number two, you have to be specific. And then number three, uh, which is point H here, there's some points about what to do if the person doesn't engage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is what I've, yeah, and it, it, I'm just reading that box now. And um, it's all contextual in the sense of how urgent, you know, these assessments are. But I think... This was sort of a, a less urgent assessment, as it, as it were. And I think that the judge is, again, saying, to quote part of that point H, the expert might consider what further bespoke educational support can be given to P to promote their capacity or engagement in the decisions that may have to be taken on their behalf. Failure to, and this again is a quote, failure to take steps to assist the person to engage or support in decision-making will be contrary to the fundamental principles of the Mental Capacity Act. So that's section 1.3 and um, section 3.2. So, you know, you may end up concluding you can't get sufficient information from the patient. But again, it's about showing you're working out, really. And so you might, you might arrive at that conclusion, but it's just showing you're working out. So, I mean, I, I'm relatively old and I did A-level maths back in the day. And I never truly, looking back, really understood what pure maths was all about. But I knew if I did the process and showed my workings out, I'd get 18 out of 20. Mm. But if I got, I might have got the answer wrong by many, 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 many millions. But, you know, I knew if I did the process. I think that's all the, the judge is really saying here is, is show your workings out. And, um, 
and I think that was something that was picked up on the there's a there's an accompanying commentary to, to this paper and I think that was showing your workings out is was, was sort of commented on that I think as well I haven't read the full paper I've only seen it it's like abstract but I think that was something that they've picked up on as well mm. and I, I suppose obviously um any psychiatrist who's going to provide a report for course protection this box is, is going to be extremely important um for them to read and to, uh, and to take on board how much of this advice do you think is generalizable to more day-to-day capacity assessments that a sort of a jobbing psychiatrist might be doing around the country well i mean the mental capacity act's been around for quite a while now what 2007 so that was when it was it was sort of came into to play full time as it were um Part of the problem with the Mental Capacity Act is that people are doing this uh, probably in old age psychiatry and many other psychiatry jobs, potentially on an hourly basis. But of course, the Mental Capacity Act doesn't come with regular forms, as you would find in the Mental Health Act. Now, I was only talking to my, my junior doctor yesterday about how, how can you give covert medication in the community and how, where do you get your legal authority from, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, again, it's the Mental Capacity Act. And I think, do people write down section one principles applied section two section three section four best interest do, do they write it down i doubt it um i try and i often write in my notes you slash uh, r slash u slash w understand retain um use and weigh and communicate i try and use that when i do my clinical notes just to say this is how i thought about it and it's connected to the mental disorder because those are key things you have to have you may lack capacity, but it has to be linked to a mental disorder, obviously. So, I mean, I think there are clear basics from applying the Mental Capacity Act, which, which come out of this paper, trying to think of things a bit more sequentially when you're doing it. But whether this, the emphasis was clearly on report writing, which, again, interestingly, the, the second expert witness uh, produced a report, clearly took the guidance from the previous case. Uh, and they they noted that you know his report or his or her report was very clearly set out, referred to detailed instructions, which you know you have to answer what they ask you. Mm. Um, recorded the fundamental principles of the MCA, demonstrated um, was capacity was decision specific, etc., and applying specifically you know, making it obvious what bits of the section three mental capacity, you know, the understand, retain, use, way, etc. So, and the other thing that came out, it's good to illustrate some of your decision making by quoting what the patient, uh, the patient or the person said, um, mm. you know, to demonstrate and, and reinforce an opinion that you arrive at. They're not expecting a transcript of your whole interview. But so I think those, those things are very useful. They're useful for any report writing, really, especially it's about being structured and answering the question. The key learning points are, are definitely generalizable into, into regular daily practice. Mm. But I think the, the basics around report writing is, is also useful, really. Mm. So, yeah, as you've said, I mean, I, th- I think there is a lot of generalizable stuff. But um, in terms of the specific case, uh, as you said, what, what happened is basically that so the judge said they needed to have a delay and they're going to get a new expert report, which, as, as you explained, was deemed by the judge to be of a better quality. Something that interests me is that actually the way this ended up is that at the time of, of the first hearing, this, this person was basically being treated as though they were incapacitous about every single one of these decisions. Mm-hmm. Actually, at the end of this whole process, I found it very interesting that the court decided that the uh, person did have capacity to make decisions about 
a couple of things in there, which was engagement with other people and and, and sexual relations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, that's that's quite interesting to me that once this, I don't know if you know maybe the person's capacity was fluctuating. Who knows what the clinical reality was? Given that this person had frontotemporal dementia and there was uh, uh, several years, I think, for, uh, during which this process was carried out, it seems kind of unlikely that, the, that their clinical case would have improved all that much. Probably several months or possibly oh, a year months? or so. Sorry, I thought yeah, the first yeah. one was, was kind of a couple of years before the second. Well, um, there may be. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, but I mean, I think it's capacity decision specific, isn't it? And, and that's the classic thing, just because you cannot make assumptions on any on how anybody looks or their diagnosis you know the starting point is whatever that person has or is or whatever the starting point is they have capacity to make that decision and it's on the um it's on their authority to, to to prove otherwise so i mean yeah the interesting thing was that she lacked capacity to the second ones felt they lacked she lacked capacity to consent to marriage but she did have capacity to make decisions around contact with others which was this other chap uh, and also to engage in sexual relations and, and during this time so that the sexual relations things is, is, is a completely another podcast or 10 in itself because there's been a glut of case law uh, refining the test of capacity for sexual relations and, and as they allude to in this case um there was a, another key a key case came out which sort of adjusted the issue around capacity consent to sexual relations and, and which I can't off the top of my head recall all the all the intricate detail but that was one of the the triggers for asking for another report in this case was that the test of capacity to consent to sexual relations sort of been updated through another case and so they reapplied that to this case so I mean, this case is a good case about how previous case law continues to influence future case law and that's how things mm. evolve so yeah so I mean, and, and i thought the, the interesting thing in this case at the end it was like they wanted to try and enable this relationship between this lady and, and her male friend to the point that they could even live together you know mm. i mean i think it was a, a a good outcome for for the person involved really yeah absolutely i mean uh, that, that is that is a positive outcome but listen, Martin, thank you very, very much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I think this is all we have time for today. I think this paper will be very uh, worthwhile reading for any psychiatrist who's performing capacity assessments, which is um, just about any psychiatrist. It is a bit of a, it's, it sort of reads as a slightly niche market with just, when I was writing it, I, I, I appreciated it was a bit of a niche market for expert witnesses. But uh, uh, that one of the other things I brought out was section, section 49 reports which are increasingly troublesome in terms of trusts um, completing them etc so that's where this paper might be very helpful for clinicians having to do these section 49 reports that are requested by the court of protection so that's that's although it's a bit niche for the expert witnesses it's actually more uh, equally applicable as the judgment says for these section 49 reports that are increasingly Mm. requested by the court of protection so that's where general uh, jobbing psychiatrists may well find um, the advice in this paper helpful. Mm, absolutely. Thank you very, very much for joining us. That was Dr. Martin Curtis, uh, and we were discussing his new paper, The Court of Protection, Expert Witness and Professional Reports, uh, which is published in BJ Psych Advances. Martin, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.